All right, so some background. Um, the book of Joshua is the chronicle of the nation of Israel after Moses dies. So Moses brings them out of Egypt. They wander through the desert a long time. Moses dies. He doesn't get to see the promised land. And then Joshua, who has been his assistant all this time, kind of steps into leadership of Israel. Um, Joseph was one, or not sorry, Joseph, Joshua was one of only two people who had actually glimpsed the promised land at this point. So he had a pretty good idea of what the Israelites were wandering towards, but none of the other Israelites did. It was kind of a mythical, kind of big thing in their culture. We're going to this promised land. We don't know what it looks like, but we've heard it's awesome. Um, so under Joshua's leadership, Israel travels to the bank of the Jordan River, which is the kind of their promised crossing. When you cross the Jordan, then you will enter this land of milk and honey. They camp out on the Jordan, and then they cross it with very specific instructions. And these instructions look a lot like when they cross the Red Sea coming out of Egypt. So, you know, God has the people mark the ark, march the Ark of the Covenant into the center, and then the waters stop, and the people cross on dry land. They go to the eastern side of the Jordan River, and then they camp again, and kind of like me this morning, they're like, this is happening, oh my gosh, and they don't really know what to expect. Um, so here they are. Um, after they cross the, the Jordan River, they conquer Jericho. That's, you know, march around seven times, scream, and the walls of Jericho fall down. The book of Joshua reads like a chapter out of a Game of Thrones novel. Um, there are prostitutes hanging out of windows. There's like raping and pillaging. There's like killing everybody and set up some standing stones. It is, it's violent and it's really intense and honestly kind of confusing as a peace-loving modern day Christian. I highly recommend you read it as a very interesting part of our history as people of God. Um, so after Jericho, then they begin this like decades long process of decimating all of the tribes on the east side of the Jordan, taking all the cities and all of the 12 tribes of Israel kind of taking the lands that they have inherited, that God has directed each tribe to take and settling there. Um, so at the end of the book of Joshua, and this is the last chapter that we just read, um, Joshua is very old and he knows that his time has basically come. And so he calls a family meeting at Shechem, and the city of Shechem um, was a city that was under the tribe of Levi, which were the priestly tribe, and this was also a city of refuge. So if you had done a crime, or if you had, um, in, the, in the book it talks about, uh, if you had committed a murder inadvertently, like I don't know who does a murder inadvertently, but that was a city that you could go to and be safe until justice could be served. So they're at Shechem, they're in this like peaceful, kind of sacred place, controlled by priests, and Joshua calls a family meeting. And it's like the elders, all the clan leaders. Um, it doesn't say if women and children are there, but I got to imagine that there were probably women and children there too. And he issues a challenge to the people of Israel. And this is a challenge that I think taken in context today, we're going to realize is actually pretty big. And it calls into question the very identity of each Israelite. But when I was growing up in the early 90s, this was, some, this was like the 90s equivalent of like live, laugh, love. And like you would have it like cross-stitched or like knitted on and put on the wall. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Um, so he says, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether it be the gods your ancestors worshipped, the gods that of the people that you've conquered, or the Lord. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Um, I think that this was much more a challenge to choose what they, the nation of Israel, and later on the family of God, which includes us, what they were going to be about going forward for the rest of time. Like you're here, you're in the promised land. The thing that's been promised to you your entire life, it has happened. You have arrived. 
And so now you need to decide what you're going to be about. Um, I wrote down here in my notes that this was not a statement about family values. I think that's kind of a really common way of taking this scripture, like, well, my house is going to serve the Lord, and these are our rules, and this is what we're going to do. Um, you know, it's like the church of be nice to people and brush your teeth. I, I don't know. I feel like that's a really watered-down way of taking this statement at the end of this very bloody book. Um, this was Joshua acknowledging that the Israelites were finally in a place where they got to choose their own path. Um, it was also a challenge that they needed to acknowledge what they had been handed over the last um, several hundred years and then what they have picked up from the time they walked out of Egypt. So here are some of the things that those Israelites were carrying as a people. Um, and I just kind of made a list. This is not an exhaustive list. These are just some things that I was thinking about when I was trying to understand where the Israelites were at this time. So they, they were carrying hundreds of years of historical gods and mythology from, you know, the time before Abraham. Abraham was called by God, but before that, what, what were the gods? What were the kind of the oral history of the people? They were carrying that. Um, if you look back at verse 2, it talks about the, the gods of your, of your fathers. Um, they were carrying a history of slavery and oppression and wandering. I think that Americans can relate to that on a certain level. Um, they were carrying um, a measure of victory over all those peoples east of the Jordan and like probably some really high feelings about that, but also some really mixed feelings because like I said, it, Joshua would be like, and God says, go into this city and take the city for yourselves. Take all the gold, take all the, the lambs and the cows and the camels and kill everyone that lives there. Um, I find that really hard to process. Um, at last, God was handing them the land that they had been promised. Uh, in verse th 13, the reason I wanted to include that in the reading today is because God says, I have given you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. You know, these were not people who had had an easy time of it. They'd just been wandering in the desert for 40 years. And before that had been slaves for hundreds of years, you know, before that. But at this time, God was just kind of handing them a victory. They did not earn the victory. It was just like, and here you go. Um, they were carrying the weight of, and, and cultural practices, kind of the gods and the worship of those gods from all the cultures they had walked through throughout that time. The gods of the Egyptians and the way the Egyptians worshipped. Um, there were probably cultural practices that went along with that that were not religious. Um, things about, you know, they talked several times in the book of Joshua about sacrificial practices that they had picked up that were not necessarily in line with um, how, how God had directed the Israelites. Um, and they were benefiting from the toil of the previous occupants of the cities they had decimated. So they walked in and they were able to make wine from vineyards that had been tended for hundreds of years by these people they conquered. So kind of an awkward place to find yourself as an Israelite. Um, and I have to remind myself that this ancient culture is not the same as our culture now. Um, they did not have vast systems of communication where they could kind of all be in on the same joke at the same time. Um, they were mostly operating on oral tradition. And what Joshua, who was an appointed judge, he was not any type of elected leader. He was an appointed judge and leader over these people. What Joshua was telling them that God was saying. Um, so that's where the Israelites were at that moment. Um, I think that this verse about choosing yourself this day whom you will serve was also an encouragement to the Israelites in their time to own their identity as a group of people by choosing the Lord or another God to serve. Um, I looked up the word serve here because my context of the word serve is, you know, what I do for my kids, like providing for needs. That's how I think of the word serving. 
Um, but in the Bible, or in, in this part of the Bible, it has a few different meanings. They are all very active meanings. Um, worship and obey, which I think is the one that we would think of most reading this verse. Um, to, to labor for or be enslaved towards, that's a meaning the Israelites would have understood very clearly as they had been an enslaved people for many generations. Um, and the, the meaning I thought was the most interesting was a meaning that looks more like cultivating or working the land. So there's a, they use the word tilling kind of in exchange with the word serve in several parts of the Old Testament. Um, so as new stewards of this land east of the Jordan, um, and two, only two generations out from slavery, um, the different people in the group of the Israelites may have had different interpretations of what the word serve meant. But they're all really valid. So the very, very oldest people in the Israelites might have remem remembered crossing the Red Sea. The younger people only had stories that their grandparents had told them about what it was like to be an enslaved person. They had not had land to cultivate or till in all this time. They'd just been wandering through the desert, waiting, God, waiting for God to miraculously provide food and water for them. Um, and worship and obey was probably kind of a mixed understanding as well, because their God was a mythological God. He had done supernatural works. They had followed a pillar of fire and smoke in the desert. Um, it was a God who brought forth water from rocks. Um, but like I said, they were also carrying these traditions from long before that. So when Joshua is asking them to choose who they're going to serve, that meant a lot of things to this particular group of people. Um, in the moment, Joseph reminds them uh, of all that God has walked them through and how he's kept his promises even unto Moses' death. Um, the verses between verse 3 and verse 13 that I did not read, read that I did not read, um, that I didn't read is kind of a recap of the history of the people of Israel. Joshua reminds them, and God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and this is what has happened to you. So please be conscious of your history. This is what you're made of. Um, I mentioned in the, the interview that Jamin and I did a couple of months ago that an observation I make about modern Christians is that we are very concerned about what the brand of our Christianity looks like. We like being on brand with Jesus, and that can look different every five years. Um, an authentic kind of relationship with Jesus, it can look very earthy, it can look very performance-based, it can look a lot of different things, but I wonder if we are actually concerned with being intimate with Jesus and his story. Um, I wonder if that was maybe part of the story for the Israelites at this time. Um, they were God's chosen people, and after all these years of slavery and wondering, God was giving them what he had promised. So it's kind of like they were on the right team at the right time. Um, I wonder, though, if there was true worship happening in their hearts, and I wonder if that's some of the pushback that Joshua gives them in the reading. Um, Joshua asks them to throw away the gods their ancestors worshipped and the gods of Egypt. That word, too, throw away, has a lot of layered meanings that they might have brought to the table. Um, it could mean cast aside, it could mean remove, it could mean turn around, and it could mean depart. And I think it's important to note in this moment that Joshua asks them to cast aside their gods. He doesn't ask them to cast aside their identity or any of the practices or any of the culture that they've picked up. He understands that they were made up of all those years and decades and generations of their experiences. But he's like, but the gods that you've chosen, you got to cast those aside. Um, and then I wonder kind of lastly from what Joshua was saying, if this was a bit of a personal reckoning for him. Um, he was able to see everything from Egypt all the way to the promised land. And as I mentioned, he was one of only two people that had actually seen the, the promised land firsthand. 
Um, and so he gets there at the end of his life. And I wonder if his, if he's concerned that his legacy is going to be military victory, you know, uh, bringing a, bringing a reckoning, um, to all the people that God was against, but empty of the heart of God. So I hear that in what Joshua is saying and how he pushes back and he says, no, you can't love the Lord because the Lord is a jealous and vengeful God. He is realizing himself who God is in that moment and what it means to be one of the chosen. So how do the people of Israel respond to the challenge that Joshua gives? Um, Their response immediately, and I kind of laughed out loud when I read it the first time because it sounds so much like cultural Christianity. Um, They say, far be it from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. And it reminds me of like celebrities or sports stars that are like, "Uh, first and foremost, I would like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for giving me this success today and helping me go out there and give 110%. Like, they attribute their success to God because that's what they've been told to do. That's the tradition. That's the oral tradition. That's how they talk in their people. But do they actually know God or feel any sort of like, um, the, I guess the weight of being personally chosen by God to be his people is maybe, is perhaps lost on them. So here's what they say. They say, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we have traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And perhaps that was a genuine response. Perhaps it was, but it sounds very much like um, some ty- like the, the oral traditions of poetry in the people of Israel. I think this was a pretty canned response. So Joshua pushes back like a good parent. This reminds me a lot of like my kids when they're like, no, I want to do it myself. And I'm like, but you can't do it yourself. You literally can't because you are a child. And they're like, no, we can. And I'm like, have at it. it you know, enjoy your own failure. You need to experience this. Um, Joshua pushes back and he's like, no, you can't. You're not able to. There will be consequences for your failure. And they insist, no, we will serve the Lord. So at this time, Joshua and the people of Israel reaffirm their decrees and laws. Um, I see this as the Israelites kind of reclaiming their heritage. They go back at this time, you know, they all they had were the Mosaic writings. So kind of the first five books of our Bible and probably not in any organized form. So they have the Ten Commandments, they have the writings of Moses, some of the creation stories. So I kind of imagine them maybe doing some readings in that time, um, maybe, you know, in this time of relative peace, now that they've settled this area, perhaps uh, distributing um, the words that they do have from God and reaffirming that as a culture. Um, I wonder, though, if the average person is even all that familiar with the Mosaic Laws at this point. Um, the stories were passed on orally, but these were essentially refugees. They did not come um, to the promised land with a whole lot. Um, later in the chapter, a couple of verses after I finished reading, uh, it says, Joshua dismisses the people, each to their own inheritance, and then he goes and dies. And that's the end of Joshua. Um, and the book kind of ends with these people, they're settled in the promised land. They've achieved success. Woo! Um, but is that, as we know it, the, the end of the history of the Jews? No, it is not. Um, they go into a period after that where they are ruled and organized by judges. Um, various people that kind of arise, these prophets and these judges, that 
provide perspective on the history of the Israelites, but the Israelites do continue to become a product of the cultures around them. They intermarry, they grow uh, greatly in size. Um, you know, and then from then on, we go into the books of like, uh, the books of David and the books of Solomon, where they ask for a king. Um, and we know up to this day that the Jews are still, they're not enjoying any sort of happily ever after, are they? Um, what does this mean for us in 2020? And that's kind of what I want, the point I want to come to this morning. Um, I want us to think about what victories we have been handed that we did not earn. Um, the Israelites walked into the promised land. Um, they did suffer on the way, but they didn't earn this. God chose them and he gave it to them. Um, I wrote a short list just kind of thinking about myself and my own story, but you'll have to think of your own. But I think some of these victories could include the various privileges that we have just by being born in America, in a country with clean water and relative freedom and access to um, things that bring us joy. Um, I am a wealthy, straight, white, educated woman. Uh, my life has not been difficult. Of course I've gone through hard things, of course. But relatively speaking, I have not wandered in the desert for 40 years. Um, I've never been enslaved to anyone. Um, and I've never had anyone oppress me, really, in any real way. Um, if you are an American, um, it means that you are living in a country built on the backs of enslaved people. You didn't ask for that. You did not personally do any of the enslaving, but you are benefiting from pain and suffering of others. And I think the Israelites probably had that in mind as they were going through and decimating all these towns. Um, I feel like there's a bit of a burden and a legacy of this promised land idea in our country. Um, and maybe even as Christians, maybe kind of the prosperity gospel idea is something that we've been handed. That's a, I don't want to say it's a victory, but it's definitely something that we've been handed as a culture that we carry into every decision we make. And every time we go to worship, we have this idea of like, um, at some point, all will be resolved and we will enter a happily ever after. And perhaps we will in heaven, in the afterlife, but I don't know that we're ever going to see that on earth. Um, I think that we have been handed a burden of doing better than the generation before, a burden of progress. Like if we don't improve this situation that we have somehow failed. Um, but at the same time, mankind progressing means pain and suffering and trial and error uh, that each generation there benefits from. Um, we've also been handed a victory of having all of the centuries and millennia of Christian writings and teachings at our very fingertips. We have more access to what God has said to Christians and what Christians have said back to him than at any other point in history. And yet, what we still do is rely on teachers to disseminate it for us. We do. So we are still looking to a Joshua of sorts to tell us what we need to do at the next point in the story. We're allowing teachers to draw the plot line for us. Um, like the Israelites traveling through these different cultures and picking up those practices and even picking up the DNA of other cultures by intermarrying, um, what have we adopted along the way? Um, changes in our culture, changes in our biology and our languages are not bad things. They just are what they are. Um, that's how humans do life. But they do change how we perceive God and how we interact with God. So if you're in this moment in 2020 feeling like your worship is more authentic than it has ever been at any point in time, you're wrong. It's not. Um, these Israelites at their time thought their worship of God 
by going in and conquering all these tribes and killing women and children and taking all their stuff was worship of God. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, we are one point on this very long story of the people of God, and we don't have it any more right. We don't have a better bead on what it means to be a follower of Christ than they did at that time, even though we have a little bit of an easier time of it. Um, those things that we adopt along the way change how we represent God and how we represent ourselves. Um, I wrote down uh, what we have is an archaeology of iconography. And of course, those influence our practice here at Christ City. We, we really enjoy the historical practices of the church throughout time, and that's part of our worship. And I think that's a wonderful way to respect the story of Christians throughout time. And I think it does a pretty good job of helping us connect as best as we can with what the story of God's people looks like. Um, at this point in the story of God's people here in Joshua, they don't even have the tabernacle yet. The tabernacle was the like tent-like first church that ever existed. They don't have a church. They don't have a synagogue. They have no idea of what that might look like. A place that you go to worship was not even part of their culture at all. All they had was the natural world around them, um, which changed day to day if you're wandering through a desert or maybe it all looked the same. I don't know. But their idea of a place of worship um, throughout the book of Joshua, they build these standing stones. They'll bring 12, sto 12 stones, one for each tribe, and they'll place it there. And in Joshua, there's a frequent saying, it says, and there it stands to this day. And Joshua was, what they were doing is marking. They were creating milestones for their Christianity. But their worship of God and their ownership in the story of God's people was no more contained in those standing stones than our story is contained in that building. It's not. Um, one point in history, in this moment, what do God's people do? Um, setting down what you have adopted along the way, it might not mean letting go of what you've become. It might not mean letting go of what makes up your experience, but it does mean letting go of the serving or cultivating of that identity. So remember I said before that one of the meanings of the word serve is to cultivate. Joshua did not ask them to reject the foreigners among them. There were lots of people from other cultures that had kind of joined this band of traveling Israelites throughout the desert. He didn't ask them to lay down their cultural practices or the way that they dressed or the way that they spoke to each other or the ways they raised their kids. He did say, cast aside your gods. So what other gods have we been serving? Because of what we've been handed and because of what we've picked up along the way in our story, these are a few that kind of came to mind for me. And again, you got to make your own list. But these are some gods that I find myself worshiping in place of the true God or in place of an intimacy with Christ. I let these take the place. Um, the American hustle. Um, because we've been taught that climbing a ladder is a holy practice and that uh, earning and gaining is akin to righteousness. And we, I think we could put the prosperity gospel in that bucket. Um, we have picked up the God of cultural religion because it's been reinforced to us that God and worship can be used as some sort of insurance against hell or against misfortune um, or as sort of a, a veneer of goodness so that others will accept us. Um, we have picked up the God of loyalty to a political party or ideology or leader because we've been taught that one side has to be right and there can't be a middle ground. We've picked up the God of being a certain type of person to fit into a certain type of community, playing a role, because we've been taught that being accepted is better than being ourselves. We've picked up the God of activism and causes, 
because we've been taught that we're only what we do and whose side we're on. And I'm, I'm not saying that any of these things are bad things. Just like Joshua was saying, you don't have to cast aside your story. You don't have to cast aside what you've picked up or what you've become or your experience, but you do need to cast aside the gods. Um, other ones I've thought of would be things like, uh, like romantic love or a relationship with a certain person, an intimate person, because we've been taught that our story begins when we meet the one, which is it constantly reinforced to us in books and TV. So have you been handed a belief and internalized it, a belief that you feel defines you? And what comes to mind when I ask you that question? Does it still stand when you isolate it against who God is? A God who has a greater story in mind that covers literally millennia of people worshiping in different ways throughout different times, talking and dressing and living differently with different levels of comfort and convenience. Does that thing that you are worshiping instead of God stand up? Um, so I'm coming uh, to the end. I have no idea how long I've been talking. I hope it's not too long. Um, as we come to the end of this particular message that I wanted you to hear, I want you to think and marinate on what it would mean to choose to serve and cultivate God and his kingdom in 2020. Um, so Joshua dies and he leaves this challenge with the people. These are sort of his last words to his people. Um, and he leaves them to go and take their own inheritance. And I think he was saying a lot more than just go and inhabit the land you were promised. I think he's saying you need to recapture your entire story and decide what you're going to be about. Um, we know how the rest of the story goes for them. They become the Jews. They don't live happily after, ever after. They suffer continually millennia of abuse and persecution. Is that part of the inheritance that he wanted them to reclaim? Or is that simply just the circumstance? I don't think it is. I think the inheritance he wanted them to, in, to reclaim was their identity. Um, we need to be reminded as our inheritance of what the word choose means. It means to select. It means to eliminate the other options. It means to ally ourselves with. And we need to remember what the word serve means, to worship and obey, to be enslaved to, and to cultivate. So for us as the body of Christ and the individuals living in it, at this time in 2020 means the same as it did for them living thousands of years ago. It means faithfulness to the body of Christ by showing up with your whole self regularly with people who also claim ownership in the legacy of Christ. It means an eagerness to help and care for others, including introducing them to a God who loves and fights for them. It means telling the story in whatever way you can. It means a consistent curiosity about the Bible and the history of God's people. And it means a willingness to live in your current time, to inhabit your own body, to inhabit your own place, to be a product of this culture and your history, but also to be a pure, created, holy thing that reflects the character of God throughout time. So I think at Christ City in Memphis in 2020, all of this from Joshua 2000 years ago boils down to deciding what we're gonna be about. And we talk a lot about this at Christ City, I feel like discussing our identity and what we believe is pretty, it's something we reiterate often here. It's, it's really core to who we are. Um, we've got a mission and a vision and eight practices that are not sacred text. Woo! Um, there went the last page of my notes, so I guess I am going off script at this point. Um, <laughs> there you go. Um, the things that we've written for our church are not sacred texts, but they are a really good way of outlining what we're about. 
So when you think about, I don't even know how to live in this time, in this year, I, I literally don't know what to expect five minutes from now. We can remember that we exist to belong and to know God and to help others do that. And we know that we're here in Memphis working to recover our lives and reimagine our purpose um, and refresh the world. And we can think about our eight practices. Um, I think you all know, and most of you are, that you can actually join our church formally as a partner and um, become more allied with us in the work that we do and get to speak into it. Um, uh, a, a writer and teacher that I really like right now, his name is Joe Saxton. She's a British Nigerian woman living in the United States. And she uh, wrote an Instagram post on this exact passage about three days ago. And I was like, well, that is convenient. And where she came to with this passage is that our choices of God, our God or other gods ultimately shape our decisions and that they're going to define the course of our lives. So our identity is what we choose. It's us continuing to choose God in whatever form we understand him at our place in time and laying down all of those things that we've been handed that are not God. So I don't have any conclusions for you. I don't have like any sort of big punchline or any big point. Um, I'm not the dynamic speaker that Robin is. I don't have the passion that Jamin has. But I do see a really clear picture here in Joshua of a people that had kind of come to the end of themselves after like a really huge eventful story. I feel like that's us coming to the end of 2020. Like what, who even are we at this point? There's like rubble behind us of all these things we've all been through collectively as a group and individually. Um, so we get to choose what we're about. And we're about God and we're about his story and making him known the best way we can in our time. So as I close, I want to pray for each of you individually to understand your place in that story, um, to understand what you have been handed and accepted in your own story as you've walked through life and what things God might have you cast aside as you choose the true God. So would you pray with me? Lord, I feel a lot of nerves this morning, and I think it's less because I'm standing on a stage preaching for the first time, which is not something I ever thought I would do. I think it's more just that I'm feeling the weight of this passage and how much it looks like life in 2020, where there are twists and there are turns, and we've been cut off from so many of the ways that we have learned to survive, and so many of the things that we've built our lives around have crumbled and will continue to crumble. So I pray that you would reveal yourself to us, maybe not in the ways you revealed yourselves, yourself to the Israelites, but, but clearly, Lord, that you're a God who doesn't change throughout millennia. I pray that you would remind us of our history and remind us of the ways that you have given us victory that we didn't earn and help us to step into the identity of belonging to you, servitude to you, enslavement to you, and that we would choose every day to cultivate that intimacy and that kingdom on earth. And as we go forth from today, Lord, I pray that you would bless us and make your face to shine upon us and that we would breathe deeply and that we would rest in you this week. Amen.